Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm one of your hosts, Katie Halper. And I'm the other host, Aaron Maite. How's it going, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm great. And as always, everybody, you can go to usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com to sign up for bonus content and support the show. Yeah, and you get a great feature, a weekly feature called Thursday Throwdown, which is your midweek dose of media madness where we react to cable news clips that we don't get to on Monday mornings. And that's always a great time. And then again, you get extended interviews. So honestly, what's not to love? Give yourself the gift of premium, exclusive, useful idiots content. You'd be a useless idiot not to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get to our four basic food groups. I have Democrats suck. And check out this headline from the Washington Post. Federal authorities charged four Americans with roles in a malign campaign pushing pro-Kremlin propaganda in Florida and Missouri, expanding a case that charged a Russian operative with running illegal influence agents within the U.S. So if you watch You Slutty It, you'll remember this case. We interviewed uh, one of the figures who's now been charged by the uh, Biden Justice Department. His name is Omali Yashitela. And he is the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. Back in the summertime, they were raided by the FBI with uh, stun grenades and lasers in both Missouri and Florida. And the FBI basically accused them of being Russian agents. And now this now is the formal indictment in that case. And if you read the indictment, they basically are accused of not registering as foreign agents while uh, pushing political positions that the that the Justice Department says are in line with the Kremlin. And they detail the fact that these people have interacted with some Russian nationals and even accepted a small amount of money from them, like in the hundreds of dollars. But yet this is somehow worthy of an indictment accusing them of being unregistered agents. And so here's the reaction. Here is Caitlin Johnstone, the writer. She says this. Wait, so Biden's Justice Department just arrested four American leaders of the African People's Socialist Party for engaging in political activity that allegedly serves Russia. How the F is that legal? And she's saying, how is that legal to bring this kind of case over people's political speech? You know, what's ridiculous, especially is using the uh, allegation or the fact that they receive money from an individual as if that proves some kind of conspiracy. This is an organization that really is uh, fueled by donations. I mean, that's a large part of what they do is that they collect donations and then they use that money to fund various projects. It's almost like for them a, a form of reparations. So, you know, you can find lots of people who donate to this. And just because you have someone donate to, to something who is from another country, the, if that makes you a foreign agent, then we could all be really screwed just from getting a donation from someone else. Yeah, and in this case, yeah, the, amount of, the amount of money is so negligible. Right, that's the other thing. And, and to your point, exactly, even if, it's, even if it was substantive, like the idea that they're acting as agents of Russia when they're just, in reality, uh, promoting political narratives that the U.S. government doesn't agree with. For example, right. they're, they're critical of U.S. foreign policy when it comes to Ukraine. And this indictment spins all of that as somehow pro-Kremlin propaganda, when really it's just free speech. So here's Glenn Greenwald with his take. Glenn says, this is an absolutely remarkable and chilling indictment. Several American black leftist groups and activists are being charged with felonies for posting memes and other political content against the war in Ukraine, protesting racial injustice, allegedly on behalf of Russia. 
So let's go to our interview that we conducted uh, last summer with the chairman of the African People's Socialist Party. Uh, he is one of the people now indicted. And this is him describing the FBI raid on his home in St. Louis. Explosions uh, began to happen all around the house. These flashbang grenades were going off. And I was to learn later that they had actually penetrated uh, into the back stairwell in the house and had, uh, had detonated these flashbang grenades uh, in the stairwell. And, uh, but I didn't know at the time where it was coming from. And so I asked my wife, who's also a leader in, in our movement, uh, to, uh, to let me go down first. And, and she should get on the phone to contact people, let them know what was happening, that we were being raided. And uh, uh, she tried, but unsuccessfully because they had jammed our phones. So we couldn't communicate with anybody. So I went down the stairs. And uh, as soon as I uh, uh, was exiting uh, the stairwell in front of the house, it was this armored vehicle, and I could see uh, these uh, camouflage-wearing uh, FBI agents, and I don't know who else there, and, and bouncing off my chest or hitting me in the chest were several of these laser dots that come from automatic, automatic weapons. So uh, I, was, I was sure that they were going to kill me at that moment. And my wife uh, was following me out of the house, and as I opened the door for her to come down the stairs, uh, a drone passed over her head going up the stairwell into the house. Uh, so uh, there was a command to, uh, to uh, come this way, come this way. And, and we walked uh, uh, toward uh, the person who was making the command, who seemed to be somebody with some authority. I was told to put my hands behind my back. They zip tied me. Uh, my wife, when she came down, they put handcuffs on her. Uh, they, they wanted us to sit on the curb uh, outside and uh, something that we didn't do. And uh, so I'm, and, and all the time this is going on, these flashbang grenades are still going off uh, around the house and perhaps in the house, in the stairwell of the house. Uh, they would break windows. They would uh, knock uh, uh, the doors in. And uh, I'm asking, what is this about? And they said that uh, we have a, a search warrant. And I asked to see the search warrant. Their answer was, well, I don't have it, but someone over here has it in some place in the vicinity. Why, why is this happening? They said that uh, later this morning, uh, some indictment is going to be issued in Tampa, Florida for a Russian national. And should he ever come to the United States, he would be arrested. At the same time, although I didn't know it, the office of the African People's Solidarity Committee, which is the solidarity front of our party, which is comprised of white people mostly who do work in 130 some odd cities and 30, and 30 states in the United States uh, around reparations and taking uh, the struggle of African people, that's their work into the white communities. Uh, uh, that center uh, recently opened uh, in South St. Louis, which is the majority white uh, section of St. Louis, was raided. They used uh, battering rams and knocked the doors in. They used the flashbang grenades. They taped uh, the video uh, cameras to make sure that they were not seen, their activities were not recorded, although they didn't succeed, absolutely. Uh, and upstairs, there's an apartment. They went to the apartment upstairs, two, two young uh, uh, part members of our organization, uh, white people, uh, were there, they were handcuffed, they were at gunpoint, held at gunpoint. So that is him describing a raid on his organization that occurred back in July. And the key thing there is they weren't even being charged then. They were just being raided because some Russian national had been indicted that day. And that raid, I think, was basically just for show to give this to the media to make it look as if the government was cracking down on the sweeping pro-Russian campaign. And then involved, you know, raiding the home of Omalia Shatella and his wife, two elderly people uh, with uh, flash grenades and, and weapons. So now this has resulted in this indictment now of um, himself and three other people 
uh, with his movement. And in our interview, he also talked about how this takes place in the long standing tradition in the US of basically trying to target black activists by painting them falsely as Russian pawns. So this is what Amalia Chatella said about that. But it's insidious uh, because this is the same FBI uh, that integrated itself for the purpose of more than 100 years ago for the purpose of, of, of infiltrating the movement led by Marcus Garvey. Uh, that's the first black person they brought into the FBI was for the purpose of destroying the Garvey movement uh, that had 11 million followers all around the world, especially in Africa. Uh, and of course, uh, we know uh, the history, Martin Luther King and how they hounded King and even tried to get him to commit suicide, the things they did to Malcolm X. And, and that's just uh, Paul Robeson, who was brought before House of Un-American Activities Committee. Were, are you or were you ever a member of the Communist Party kind of garbage that, and you know, like Russia somehow has always, in, in most of this, uh, except for Garvey, you know, uh, there's this this specter of Russia that's someplace being used uh, because it's one problem that they have is the history uh, that the United States government and most of Europe, um, the history that they have with black people in Africa and every place else. Uh, so to say that we are continuing that war uh, to maintain the captivity of black people and to frustrate any effort that they need making to be free uh, they're not fighting black people, they're fighting Russians. And so rather than fight Russians in the real world uh, in St. Petersburg, Russia, they're fighting Russia in the black community of St. Petersburg, Florida, and in St. Louis, Missouri, which is absolutely ridiculous. He's 81 years old. He's 81 years old. Yeah, yeah. And Looks was the target of this raid on his, on his home. And now he's a subject of this indictment. And this to me, results from years of Russiagate mania. Uh, liberals were conditioned to believe that the government was seriously concerned about protecting them from malign Russian influence. And when they were doing that to go after Trump and his associates and accusing them of being Russian pawns, everybody cheered. But this always was the purpose of this kind of um, McCarthyite atmosphere, which is that anyone deemed to be inconvenient to the national security state is going to be tainted as a Russian pawn. And so it's not a surprise that after years of, you know, enrolling liberals in seeing anyone that they don't like as being Russian agents, that the FBI would then return to its traditional targets, black leftists, uh, with the exact same tactics. Right. So uh, this case will be really interesting if it goes to trial. Because if you, you read the indictment, and again, there's very little in here when it comes to actual viol alleged violations of the law, it's all about basically going after these people for saying things the government doesn't like about Russia and the Ukraine proxy war. And there's even a line in there where in the indictment where it says that Russia has long spread propaganda for many aims, including to undermine Western sanctions. So somehow it's like a bad thing for someone out there to oppose Western sanctions. Wow. And you can even be maybe charged for it. Uh, it's uh Oh, uh, we should look out. You should look at, especially Aaron. Oh, yes. <laughs> Forget it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, this is something that we've seen. I mean, we saw this with Abby Martin uh, when her work was considered uh, suspect because right. she had things on her show. Like she, I think, interviewed Jill Stein. She covered protests. She covered Occupy Wall Street. So anything that you cover that is something that critics of the U.S. would appreciate makes you a potential conspirator, basically. And we should also point out the fact that, you know, blaming Russians for anti-racism 
is something we've seen recently from people like Susan Rice, who suggested that maybe Russians were behind the George Floyd protests. And also, of course, our beloved uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, who suggested that Russians were behind the Colin Kaepernick scandal. The Russians really are everywhere. They really are. Uh, that the Russians the are coming. They're here. They're here. The last six plus years, the Russians are everywhere. Yeah. It's really ridiculous. So, um, well, that's Democrats suck. And wow, does that suck? And we'll be keep focusing on that story because it's really important to cover it, especially because the rest of the media is either going to ignore it or if they do cover it, they're going to do it in a really uh, irresponsible and ahistorical way. So for Republicans suck, let's go to Iowa. And there's an interesting story about how the Iowa Senate passed a child labor bill in a pre-dawn session. Following breaking news at the state house, the Iowa legislature went into session really early this morning, taking up debate on the bill on youth employment. The vote happened over an hour ago. Now let's go live to Griffin Wright, who's at the state house with what this means for the child labor laws in the state. Good morning, Griffin. Good morning, Justin and Kaylin. So just hours ago, the bill passed. Uh, the vote was 32 to 17. All the Democrats voted against the bill along with two Republicans. Now that vote or that bill is going to be heading towards the House. Now, once at the House, uh, they will examine the bill, which says uh, it will allow 14-year-olds to work six-hour night shifts. It'll allow 15-year-olds to work in plants on assembly lines, moving items up to 50 pounds, and allows 16- and 17-year-olds to serve alcohol. Many Democrats say this can be dangerous for kids by putting them in risky jobs. Republicans say that's not true, and it's just giving them more opportunities to earn money. Here's what was said on the debate floor. I wouldn't want my granddaughter serving alcohol or getting an exception to do hazardous work in the name of workplace learning. A workplace accident can happen in the blink of an eye. It takes mere seconds for a red iron beam to fall. Iowans should not be putting our kids, and they are kids, in dangerous situations. With this bill, we are strengthening and providing protections to our youth. We are not forcing them into slave labor. We are not selling our children. We're not even requiring them to work. So there you go, guys. Everybody calm down. They are not selling their children. They're not forcing them into slavery and they're not requiring them to work. So nothing to see here, folks. It seemed like that's his message, right? Like he's trying to reassure us that we're not forcing kids into slavery. So that's why there's nothing to worry. That's yeah, exactly. why there's nothing to worry about. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. are not uh, kidnapping children, torturing them in underground chambers. So there's really nothing to be upset about. <laughs> you know it's a bad sign when you have to sh point out the thing that awful things you're not doing to try to make it look like the awful things you're doing are okay. And why are they passing this? Because there's a work shortage in the state, so they got to yeah. bring kids in. Well, so I mean, hey, because um, they'd have to pay adults, you know, better wages. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They don't want to yeah. do that. I mean, you know, uh, when I was 15 or 16 or even 14, I. I had jobs and my friends had jobs and some friends of mine even actually were serving in restaurants. And uh, so I, I think, a, you know, a 16 year old can do that. But uh, to do this to replace adults is, uh, of course, really shady. And also the fact that they're holding this vote before 5 a.m. Yeah, I wonder why. Yeah. yeah. Did they stay up all night to do that or did they just arrive really early for work? Because, you know. 
Right. That's a good question. I'm not sure. If they're arriving that early, at least they're setting an example for the youth about. Yeah, it's true. Right. How to start your day and how to how to go how to go for it. Right. Dystopian thing that's happening. Yeah. Well, speaking of labor, you won't believe who some people are putting to work on their lawns. Uh, not kids, but uh, humankind's best friend. Katie, what you know, an animal you're very fond of. Very fond of. The dog. Check out this dog doing some yard work. Oh, look at that little doggy. He's on a on a lawnmower. And doing a pretty good job. He's backing up. He's Yeah, reversing. seriously. How does that even happen? That's like I couldn't even do that. Now, my only question is, is this dog, and for those who can't see this, there's a dog on a lawnmower mowing the lawn and, you know, backing up and going forward and seems to be in command. I mean, is it possible this is a trick that someone's playing on us and this, this is controlled by remote? Oh, wow. Yeah. That because would be. This is just, you know, it's <laughs> too good to. Bu- it's too I good mean, to be too. Yeah. Wow. It kind of looks like a Roomba style yeah. lawnmower. Interesting. Yeah. It went up to the fence. Yeah. 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 Well, regardless, whether it's a trick or whether it's that dog's unique skill, that's weird. And uh, it's also pretty impressive. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Isn't that kind of adorable, impressive? Yeah. So for Isn't That Terrible, uh, this doesn't maybe doesn't seem terrible. We have a story about an opera. It's called Grounded. Uh, it's uh, a female pilot turned drone operator wages a personal war and Janine Tesori's world premiere commissioned by and co-produced with the Metropolitan Opera. Here's the image from it. Um, and let me just read to you the, uh, the part of the description. Mother, soldier, what if both are at war? Jess is a hotshot F-16 fighter pilot and elite warrior trained for the sky. When an unexpected pregnancy grounds her, she's reassigned to the chair force to control drones in Afghanistan from the comfort of a trailer in Las Vegas. But war, quote, with all the benefits of home, end quote, isn't clear cut. As Jess tracks terrorists by day and rocks her daughter to sleep by night, the boundary between her worlds becomes dangerously permeable. Now, you could see that that could potentially be an anti-war opera. And it's opening at the Kennedy Center, the very prestigious Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. But there's one thing that makes me suspect it may not be. And that is if you look at the uh, presenting sponsor. And uh, if you can see at the bo- at the right side of the screen, the presenting sponsor is General Dynamics, <laughs> one of the biggest uh, weapons manufacturers. So I'm guessing that this is not going to be a critique of the military industrial complex. Unless General Dynamics is coming out against uh, the drone wars. Maybe General Dynamics isn't profiting off of them. Maybe those contracts oh, go to yeah. maybe maybe like those contracts go to Lockheed Martin or something like that. So General Dynamics is like, all right, fine, let's let's uh, fund an anti-war opera to ground the drone wars. Who knows? Oh, maybe. Yeah. Well, we'll have to we'll have to keep you posted on that. But I'm pretty sure it's terrible if it's uh, sponsored by them. <laughs> it's a safe bet. Yeah. It's a safe bet. And those are your four basic food groups. This week's guest is Lee Fong. He is one of the top investigative journalists in the U.S., uh, spent many years at The Intercept, which he recently left, and has now launched his own Substack. It's leefong.substack.com. And make sure you join our Substack, usefulidiots.substack.com, or if you are on Locals, usefulidiots.locals.com, because we have an extended interview with Lee, and we get into uh, what happened between him and Mehdi Hassan, why Mehdi Hassan accused Lee of being Islamophobic, what the truth is. Spoiler alert, he's not Islamophobic and didn't say anything Islamophobic. And Lee also uncovered some alleged, I mean, it looks like plagiarism uh, based on the text, uh, 
that uh, Mehdi Hassan engaged in where he lifted some text from an article by Jeff Halpern, no relation, uh, on Israel and an article about uh, spanking, in defense of spanking, actually. And so in the Substack, I'll do some reading, side-by-side uh, -side reading, so you'll, you'll be the judge of whether or not it's plagiarism. All right, let's go to Lufa. Lee Fong, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. I want to start by asking you about the case of Jack Texera, this 21-year-old uh, National Guardsman who's been arrested on allegations of leaking all these classified intelligence documents that have come out in recent weeks. One of the bizarre aspects of this whole story is seeing the media first assist in helping to identify him. You had the New York Times uh, working on a story that outed Jack Texera before he was even arrested. And then you have journalists scolding the Pentagon for these leaks in the first place and demanding what they're going to, asking them what they're going to do to prevent leaks from being revealed. So let's go to first a clip. This is put together by Glenn Greenwald Show System Update from a recent Pentagon news conference where journalists are pressing a Pentagon spokesperson to explain how this happened and what the Pentagon will do to prevent it from happening again. Okay, in the days after the leaks came to light, what steps has DOD taken to reduce the number of people who have access to not only these classified briefings, but the classified material in general? But you are taking steps to tighten that, I guess, population who might have access to this level of information. General Ryder, you say that there are strict protocols in place, and yet a 21-year-old airman was able to access some of the nation's top secrets. How did this happen, and isn't this a massive security breach? What is your message to anyone who might be thinking of leaking these kind of documents in the future? Can you tell us, where are there less people who have access to this type of information today than there were a week ago? Yeah. To follow on that, these documents were available long before April 5th and 6th. So what took so long for <laughs> DOD and the intelligence communities to, to locate these documents? Are you going to release this airman's service record? What technologies is the Pentagon applying right now to both spot leaked documents online and track potential indicators of leaking type practices? Do you plan to be investing in more? Given the gravity of the situation, are you actively paring down the distribution list now? Is this a, a process that's moving quickly? Or is it going to, to take time for there to be meaningful, substantive changes to the distribution? And then is DOD or has DOD taken additional measures to restrict the access to classified information of others in the Massachusetts Air National Guard? Uh, sort of as a follow-on to Carla and Brandy's questions, um, can you say whether DOD has anyone looking at uh, chat rooms on Discord, for example, or other social media platforms right now? for leaked information, and um, if not, should should DOD have these people? Why don't they just ask for his, his home address also? <laughs> so what do you make of all this, Lee? Look, I think the most concerning set of those questions were the ones that were demanding more surveillance and more penetration into private chat rooms. You know, Discord is a platform that is used by millions of Americans for, you know, gathering, discussing, you know, any topic of the day, uh, it's kind of focused on the video gaming community. But there are really two types of, of uh, chats on Discord. There are the public forums that are no different than Twitter. You know, it, anyone can join and, and, and see the discussion. But then there are private chat rooms that are functionally no different than a private call. You know, so for reporters and journalists to be demanding 
that the Pentagon have more access to these private chat rooms, that's functionally the same as reporters demanding, you know, more Pentagon penetration into private communications, whether that's, you know, a private call with your family, a private call with your church or mosque or any other kind of private communication. You know, we have laws strictly limiting the government's ability to, without a warrant or without probable cause, intrude on our private communications. If that's the the, the reflexive uh, demand by many in, in, in the media, I mean, that press conference is fascinating, but we see these kind of demands all scattered throughout the both independent and uh, kind of large corporate press. Um, that's very concerning because, you know, there are clear civil liberty issues being raised there. And look, if you want to, um, you know, there 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 is maybe a legitimate discussion about you know, how you know, widely accessible classified information is, sure, that the onus is on the Pentagon. But it's an entirely different discussion uh, if you start asking that the military, that the Pentagon starts scanning private communications for classified documents. That's, that's opening a whole new kind of a, arena in terms of mass surveillance. And check this out. The Biden administration is pretty much already giving these reporters what they're asking for. Here's this headline from NBC News. The Biden administration is looking at expanding how it monitors social media sites and chat rooms after U.S. intelligence failed to realize classified Pentagon documents circulated online for weeks. So already this is being used as an opportunity to increase surveillance of the Internet. Yeah, that's that's right. And, you know, um, this story is based on kind of anonymous leaks from the administration. I think there's also a congressional aide. It's saying that they'd like to kind of scan these private rooms for potential classified information. That's really, again, not that different from the kind of demands we saw after 9-11, that private phone calls be scanned for, you know, discussions with potential terrorists, that, you know, any kind of uh, online or telecommunication um, that, that the government should have backdoor access to kind of find the, you know, uh, to, to take preemptive action against any uh, potential terror. Um, again, we're talking about private communications here where, you know, the, the Constitution is clear. You need a warrant. Uh, you need probable cause. And this kind of uh, discussion that w- we need to pre-screen private chat rooms for classified information, uh, that's that's a massive increase in, in government's reach into our, our daily lives. And what about the almost obsessive focus on the individual who uh, leaked these documents and on what will happen next and what kind of uh, promises the Pentagon can make to make sure it doesn't happen next, as opposed to the content of the leaks. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of, I think, shameful meta narrative that the media loves to engage in rather for any leak. You know, this is not a, this is a playbook that's applied uh, to whistleblowers or leakers, regardless of their motivations on every major kind of revelation of this type. You know, for as long as I've been in journalism and, and certainly before my time as well, you know, this this the kind of meta narrative of you know, what what's going on in Chelsea Manning's head. You know, what's her psychological state? You know, what what are Julian Assange's true motivations? What What's his you know, what, what kind of human being is he? You know, let's look into every kind of personal scandal or, you know, alleged personal issue that he has, you know, or, or even with the Twitter files is the same thing rather than look at the content of the documents and, and let them speak for themselves in terms of how they serve the public interest, how they kind of explain, you know, there's a variety of stories in there that, that shape and, and affect um, a, a number of issues. Uh, rather, rather than looking at that, let's talk about Elon Musk and, and what his tweets mean. And if, is he retweeting the wrong people? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a distraction game. And you're seeing it now kind of being applied here, where there's this, this obsessive focus on, oh, what what is Discord? Is this some kind of 
radicalization machine that's affecting our youth or you know let's let's look at look at jack i mean look uh you know, there are some, again, there are some, there's a news interest in who this person is and what his motivations are, are certainly. But for so many media outlets to crowd out the actual content of those these documents, to look at, you know, what, what is the end game here in Ukraine, Russia? Uh, you, you know, are these kind of estimates accurate? Uh, you know, what about these other leaks in terms of Egypt, of Israel and, and China and Korea? Um, rather than taking a look at the, the news value here uh, and, and the content of the leaks, there's this obsessive meta narrative that seeks to um, personalize the debate just about um, this alleged leaker and to have kind of a, a, a focus on the dangers of, of people like him. And there's also the recycling of the familiar playbook of blaming Russia for everything. So before this alleged leaker was arrested, this was the headline from Reuters. Russia likely behind U.S. military document leak, U.S. officials say. And this story, by the way, was sourced to three different U.S. officials who put this out there. Uh, oh, and were they all named or were there some anonymous here? I, I, you know, I just, this is um, a typical kind of, I mean, we saw this with the Hunter Biden laptop with, you know, so many of the so, so supposed like disinformation campaigns on social media that, you know, anyone who questions you know, mandates or lockdowns, you know, that's Russian disinfo or, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of a, a shameful game. And, you know, it's, it's a distraction again, from like just our domestic issues. You know, there are people in America that actually have agency. They don't need to be <laughs> shaped by a foreign power to take action. Whether, you know, again, if this, this was uh, someone who was just trying to inform his own small community of, about updates around the, the war in Ukraine or someone who had a more ideological, Motivation. I, I don't think that's clear yet. Um, there are a lot of claims about his motivations, but I, I'd like to actually hear from him uh, yeah. rather than have people kind of filter his views who are kind of obsessive uh, allies of the security state. And what do you think the most important revelations from these leaks are? Well, it looks like, I mean, I, 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 the, the kind of character of the leaks have changed just in the last week. I mean, initially, it was just two or three documents. Uh, looking at assessing the kind of military readiness of Ukraine and, and their kind of spring-summer planned offensive. And then it came out that the U.S. had apparently wiretapped the Mossad in Israel and, and, and shown that they were involved, that the spy agency in Israel is involved in the anti-Netanyahu protests we saw from uh, the last few months. I mean, that, that's fascinating. But now it, it seems like there are maybe 300 documents that span all kinds of different uh, revelations. So I think it's actually TBD. It's that many documents uh, looking at signals intelligence from how the U.S. is essentially wiretapping political and military leaders from all over the globe. I, I mean, I, maybe we don't even know yet. For me, because I'm so focused on the proxy war in Ukraine, the, the revelation that Pentagon officials have been saying that, you know, Ukraine's on the march that they're in a strong position militarily ahead of their spring offensive. And then to read in these documents that actually they're assessing that Ukraine suffered huge losses and that these losses are not sustainable and that the Pentagon does not predict that Ukraine can make any significant gains in the spring yeah. offensive. The exact opposite of what Lloyd Austin and Mark Milley have been saying publicly. Right. Yeah, if you're, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't want to speak you know, too broadly, because I haven't watched every Pentagon press conference or a State Department press conference. Perhaps some reporters are asking these questions, but that is the top line question. If, if the Secretary of Defense and State Department officials are saying one thing and uh, to the public and to the press and then behind closed doors, they're saying something diametrically opposite. 
about Ukraine's military readiness, that, you know, this will be just a bl- bloodletting of a essentially a military stalemate without any significant territorial gains. Um, you know, it, it has kind of echoes of the Vietnam War, you know, where, you know, generals and, and, and political leaders were, were telling one thing to the public about uh, how much territory was being gained and, and, and how, how much wide support uh, the U.S. military had. Uh, well, you know, the Pentagon Papers and, and other documents showed, you know, the, the exact opposite. There was, there was a gigantic lie being sold to the American public. You know, th- that's the question that needs to be asked at these press conferences. And again, I don't I don't know if, if, if it has been, but, you know, I, I haven't seen it. No, the question, the question that we saw is how can we stop these leaks from <laughs> happening again? And by the way, look, it's not surprising that this is the assessment because back people forget this now. But back last year in November, the top military officer in the U.S., Mark Milley, came out in favor of diplomacy. And he said that there's the Ukraine has won as much as it could possibly win and that their prospects of winning more are not high. Now, since then, he's backtracked and he's sort of forgotten he said that. But that was his assessment back then. And I think his assessment was based on the leaked uh, intelligence that we're now getting publicly. You know, this kind of larger debate of, of where does this go? I mean, what's the end game here is, is, is kind of the essential discussion that needs to be had that we're not having. I mean, it's just the kind of shameful series of events last year when the House Progressive Caucus had simply wanted to send a letter to the Biden administration that um, negotiations, that diplomacy should at least be one of the tools at the table, not just the military option. And the House, to see that get shut down and the kind of self-immolation of the left-wing caucus of the House Democrats um, is, is, is sad to watch because, look, Russia's incursion into Ukraine is a human rights crisis. You know, uh, what they did is deplorable on any level. But, you know, that doesn't justify an unending war with no end in sight, with, you know, countless lives lost. Um, there, there has to be more than just a military option here. And I think that, you know, the fact that we're not having this discussion in the media or even our political leaders is just shameful. Yeah, I mean, that's why one of the reasons that they have to focus so much on what will be done to prevent leaks like this from happening next time or what who this person was or his motives are, because if people actually looked at the content of the leaks, they'd be saying, "Okay, we're being lied to by our leaders and we are engaged in a endless proxy war with no end in sight. And it totally undermines the alleged commitment to Ukrainian uh, civilian life, which is apparently what this war is about. Now, we all know that there uh, have, are major geostrategic elements to this, and we know this because of things that people from Lloyd Austin to Biden himself have said. But it really is despicable that we're not focusing at all on the larger story, which is, I would say, the two of them. One is that we're being lied to, and two, um, the war in Ukraine is not uh, what it, what people are claiming it is. No, you see, you see these kind of pro-war accounts and politicians and other policymakers waving this kind of bloody demand that, that, and this, these kind of extremely optimistic scenarios that Ukraine can retake Crimea, that they can go deep into all the kind of um, seized territory, or even make even make you know successful incursions into Russia. I mean, the war propaganda is at a very high level. And as I understand it, it's, you know, it's kind of has as a, a dynamic, a kind of centrifuge dynamic where, you know, you have these politicians and, and, and uh, military leaders making these claims in public. And then there's this social media kind of engine that backs it up and gets kind of rapidly furious with anyone who questions the military's objectives. I mean, you see this certainly on Twitter. 
um, it's, it's a dangerous dynamic. Yeah. And our media is, I mean, it's interesting that you compared it to Vietnam because we don't have the kind of adversarial media that we did back then, I think, sadly. Yeah. I mean, um, look, there were thousands more reporters for one. Uh, there aren't that many journalists now, just given the kind of death of the, the old advertising mod- model. Um, but yeah, you, you saw even more critical questions from the press back in the day, even though there was, there were, it was extremely fraught. Yeah, it, even with um, the open internet and unlimited opportunities to ask questions and, and, and poke at the truth, um, you see very little of it in the media landscape today. Well, Lee, let's talk about one of your uh, recent pieces that were based on the contents of the Twitter files. It, the headline was Twitter aided the Pentagon in its covert online propaganda campaign. So talk to us about what happened here. Yeah, so this was my first um, story using these internal uh, Twitter emails. And actually, I took, had a chance to look at some of their internal tools as well to report the story. And what essentially happened was that, from what we know, um, there were account, a set of accounts all throughout the Middle East that the military had used as kind of quasi publicly known propaganda accounts. They were, you know, in their bio, they said, you know, based in Tampa, Florida at CENTCOM. <laughs> so, you know, even though there is tweeting in Arabic, of, of essentially Pentagon press releases, they're clearly identified. And then at some point uh, in, in, in 2017, with some communications going back and forth uh, between the Pentagon and Twitter, they, there were requests from the Pentagon for special labels from, from Twitter. Um, so, you know, before Elon Musk take over Twitter, uh, the blue check uh, conferred special abilities uh, to Twitter accounts. Um, you were, it was almost impossible to, to be flagged as a bot, to be kind of shadow banned. You were more likely, if you had a blue check, to trend on, on Twitter and to go, kind of go viral. You had increased visibility power. These, these are kind of like built-in bots uh, that are in the, the back end of the Twitter system. And the, and the military asked for a special, for Twitter to, to either create or apply a special tag for their network of Middle East accounts, a invisible blue check that conferred that same ability, but without the visible blue check. And as they, they did that, suddenly these, these Twitter accounts went dark. They changed their bios to say that, you know, oh, we're just, you know, a uh, a Yemeni, you know, regular person, or, you know, I, I'm a, someone who comments on Euphrates politics. This is, a, you know, an account in, um, in Iraq. Um, these were accounts in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and, and all, really all throughout the Middle East. And um, some of them kind of identified as citizen journalists, others as just regular people. But this entire network, you know, continued and actually increased their number of tweets, commenting on issues uh, revolving around U.S. military objectives, but in a covert way. So this was, you know, in, in every way, an influence operation, as, as they describe it in the military, you know, this kind of covert uh, propaganda, uh, you know, whether that's seeded into newspapers and magazines or, or television, or in this case, social media, where it's, it's the hand of the Pentagon shaping military objectives, shaping public opinion in the Middle East, but, um, you know, without any visibility, without, you know, kind of, kind of cloak and dagger stuff. And this is the exact type of Twitter activity that Twitter, at the same time as they, they were kind of um, providing concierge service to the Pentagon for their shadow operation, that Twitter was going to the public, going to Congress, you know, really like on a regular basis, promising that this will never happen. You know, this is a, this is after the 2016. This is at a time when Twitter was kind of facing a lot of pressure that, and, and making these very 
splashy public statements that they're going to shut down every state-backed influence operation. No, they're doing everything they can to shut down state-backed influence operations, whether they're from you know Thailand or, or China or, or Russia. Um, they were saying that you know that they're the most transparent company in this regard. That every time they catch a state-backed influence operation, not only will they rapidly shut it down, but they're going to post a transparency report uh, showing the kind of number of accounts and tweets that were involved in these state-backed uh, influence ops. Uh, at the same time, there were regular discussions helping the military and the military, you know, even in, in subsequent years, uh, we're asking for more more and more accounts to be added to this kind of secret whitelist, uh, this kind of invisible blue check and saying, hey, can you, you know, attend these classified meetings and, and help us kind of conceal these accounts? You know, it would be bad for U.S. military operations if any of this was was caught. You know, the, the email traffic is very clear. So it, it really shows kind of. I think two things. One, the military, the military's engagement on the the same type of tactics that we see described from Russia and others. Um, and it's true. I think every, almost every country with a you know strong military presence seems to engage in these types types of activities. And two, the kind of duplicity of Twitter that um, they were under the old leadership certainly, and you know I don't know about now. They were certainly working uh, hand in glove with the military and, and telling a lie to the public that they. We're doing everything they could to, to shut down th these types of activities. So after Twitter realized what was going on, what did they do with these accounts? You know, we I was able to look at a lot of these emails and it, it looked like late into 2020, 2021, going into 2022 last year, um, there's an effort to say, hey, you know, these these accounts are kind of out of control. Uh, the military seemed embarrassed by some of them, at least. Um, and there was an attempt to wind them down, but Twitter started working with the Pentagon. Um, there are a lot of discussions about how to wind some of these accounts down without being caught. Because if there was a mass kind of blackout of, of certain accounts, someone might notice that there's coordinated activity and that would kind of reveal the Pentagon's hand. So Twitter is even in the wind down of, of, of this uh, fake account network. Um, they were working with the Pentagon to, to do it secretly to, to make sure that if some of these accounts were taken offline, it was done in a way that looked organic, so the Pentagon uh, wouldn't be revealed to the public. So, you know, not only were they shepherding these accounts from from the beginning, giving them special privileges, and, and you know, with full knowledge of what the military was doing, even in the wind down, <laughs> Twitter clearly knew uh, that this was going this, this was going on, and this was not a transparency effort. This was kind of a an assistance with military secrecy effort, and um, you know, there was a, a a kind of a splashy report. Uh, last fall, internet researchers that identified some of these accounts and tied them to a larger network of fake news accounts controlled by the military, you know, pushing the kind of scurrilous stuff uh, that uh, Russia kind of engaged in back in the day as well. You know, there were these military controlled news accounts that claimed that Iran was, you know, harvesting the organs of Afghan civilians that, you know, you're really kind of ugly allegations. And, and they were tied into this larger effort. Uh, run by private contractors to shape public opinion in the Middle East and, and around kind of U.S. adversaries. So, you know, it, you know, in, in late 22, most of this was shut down. But I, we also just don't know. You know, I, I'm looking at a snapshot from the, the Twitter files. But, you know, it, it's certainly possible that there's, there's a lot more to this. We, we don't have the same kind of insight into what Facebook is doing. We don't have the insight into what these private contractors are doing and setting up these third party websites. Uh, we, we don't know about the, the kind of journalists and, and other workers that were employed. I, I was able to find someone who used to work 
at one of these kind of fake news sites uh, run by the Pentagon. And, you know, he had been involved in this uh, way back in the day, kind of before it kind of took a more cloak and dagger approach. But, you know, if we, if we had more information, we'd have better insight. Lee, I also wanted to ask you about something that happened between you and Mehdi Hassan, where he on Twitter, after you kind of uh, pushed back on some of his claims about the Twitter files and about Matt Taibbi, he accused you of being Islamophobic. So I want to ask you about that. And then I want to ask you about some plagiarism allegations you made against Mehdi Hassan. Uh, you found some passages that certainly do look like they have been uh, lifted almost verbatim. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. And Lee, so you now are on Substack. Uh, it's at uh, leefong.substack.com. Do you want to tell us quickly about the kind of work uh, that you'll be doing there? Yeah, I, I left The Intercept after more than eight years there uh, last month and had kind of created a Substack a few months ago as a placeholder. But now that's my full-time gig. I'll be writing investigations on any number of topics. You know, I'm interested in everything. I'm, I'm kind of a generalist. I, I cover business and politics. Uh, I write about lobbying and, and, and corruption, um, media accountability, uh, certainly. But, you know, there's just so many issues in, in public life that pique my interest and that I'd like to apply my kind of my brand of journalism, looking at, at, at documents, uh, investigating, talking to interesting people. And um, I hope to kind of uh, return to independent journalism. You know, I had an anti-corruption blog uh, in, in my 20s, and I had a lot of fun doing it. You know, it, it was kind of diff difficult to do back in the day. But, you know, Substack provides a really interesting model uh, for independent voices. And I, I hope to make this sustainable. Great. Website again is leefong.substack.com. Lee, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, that was great. And Lee is, I think, one of the best investigative reporters in the country. And he's got a huge body of work that he did at The Intercept and before that in other places like The Nation. And I have no doubt he'll continue to do that now independently yeah. at Substack, leefong.substack.com. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them. 